Today's scripture comes from 1 Kings 21, verses 1 through 7. Now, Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went to his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Randy always likes to mess with me right when I'm getting up here, um, and it's really mean, so thanks, Randy. Uh, my name is Andrew. I'm the campus pastor here at the Leewood campus, and it's really great to be here with you, and I'm, I'm going to start us off this sermon in kind of a weird place, but I promise it will make sense eventually. So imagine with me uh, that you are from Osage County, Oklahoma, and it's 1921, and you are a member of the Osage people the tribe, Native Americans, and you and, and your family uh, and your people have been resettled multiple times um, throughout what used to be your ancient uh, tribal homeland, and uh, until finally you're, you're, you've kind of settled on what most would think is the least desirable part of your, of your ancestral homeland. And you're, you know, you're making it work there. Your family's been there for a while. But then suddenly, uh, massive oil reserves are found uh, underground in your county. And suddenly, uh, you, you become, and your people, the, some of the wealthiest people in the world. And as a full tribal member, you uh, have royalty rights for all the oil that's sold, as well as rights to the property that your family itself owns, which is now worth thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars at the time. And Congress, U.S. Congress, is seeing all this crazy money flowing into bank accounts. And they decide uh, to, as- to assign guardians from the county, who are mostly uh, lawyers and businessmen, not from the tribe, to uh, basically uh, handle your affairs until you are deemed competent enough uh, to handle it yourself. And in the midst of all of that, suddenly, Osage people in your county begin to die. They're shot, they're blown up, they're left for dead in the wilderness, and over four years, over the span of four years, 60 full-blooded Osage people are murdered. And local law enforcement is either unwilling or unable to do anything about it. And as the bodies pile up, the rights and royalties of those deceased begin conveniently consolidating to wealthy, powerful people. And it's a reign of of terror upon you and your people, almost unparalleled in modern American history. And it's, it's a conspiracy 
An outside government agency, which would later become the FBI, has to step in to just, just to stop the bloodshed. And this, if you haven't heard it, this is a true story. It's retold in New York Times bestseller, Killers of the Flower Moon, the Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI. And the author, David Grant, he, he tells the story primarily through the lens of one woman. Her name is Molly Burkhart. And by the end of the story, I won't give away the whole thing, but by the end, Molly has lost her two sisters, her brother-in-law, her mother, and it's even discovered that her, her own husband was a part of the conspiracy. And the way Grand tells the story, uh, you can never forget Molly. You can never forget what she's been through. And you finish the book and you have this haunting feeling, this suspicion that, that a great injustice, a great evil has been left largely unjudged. And most of the murders, uh, even from 1921, have been left un, unsolved. Stories like that, uh, they stick with you, don't they? They, they, you don't, they don't leave you. You don't forget them. They make you cry out for punishment, for reckoning, for, for judgment. Stories like Molly's do that. And, and here, stories like Naboth's do that too. The story we just began a few moments ago. They're, they're, these stories are separated by thousands of years, thousands of miles, language, history, culture, geography, but they are profoundly connected. And there are many more stories like them. Naboth, his is a name you will not soon forget, and his story will remind us that we, we need justice, and we need God to be judged. So if, if you brought your Bible, turn to 1 Kings 21. Uh, use your table of contents that you have to. It's a hard book to find. Chapter 21. Uh, and this is where Naboth's story begins. And while you're turning there, I just want to give you a little background. Naboth maybe isn't someone you're really familiar with. Uh, Naboth uh, is um, a good guy. That's what I think as I read this story. Naboth is a good guy. He's, he's the kind of guy that you would really like. He's the kind of neighbor that would get your mail for you, you know, when you're on vacation and uh, help you change your tire in the driveway when uh, your kid blew a tire. <laughs> that kind of guy. The kind of guy is the kind of neighbor who did what was right just because it was right, even though no one is watching. He lived in a, a town called Jezreel, which is not too far from Samaria, which if you remember is the capital of Israel. Samaria is. He's not far from there. Naboth doesn't have much. Doesn't seem like it anyway. He's, he's a local business owner. He has a vineyard that has been in his family for generations and generations and perhaps all the way back to Joshua and when, when Israel first came into Canaan. It's possible that his family had this land for all of that time. This is where his father learned the art of farming and where his father learned and where his father learned. And it's where he is teaching his own sons the same so that when they're ready, when it's time, they will be able to feed their families, their neighbors, their community for a new generation to come. The vineyard is like much of the Jezreel Valley at the time. It's, it's good soil. It's fertile soil. Um, but Naboth's vineyard is not special. There's nothing that makes it different from pretty much anything else in the area. There's only one thing. <laughs> it's, it's next to King Ahab's palace. Ahab, if you have been with us in our series, With Us, um, you know he is the evil, wicked king of Israel, and, and they are neighbors. Now, Ahab's capital is in Samaria. So that's, that's the capital of Israel. It's where the king does, it's like, that's, that's the White House. But if you read in 1 Kings, uh, the story of, of Ahab kind of through, you see he's often in Jezreel. And I get the impression that he and his wife Jezebel really like to escape their royal duties and go to Je This is their favorite palace in Jezreel. This is their getaway. And no doubt, uh, uh, Ahab has seen Naboth many times. 
He probably has a balcony in his palace where he can see this land. He, maybe he's talked to Naboth and his family. He probably knows their names. Maybe um, he's even interacted with them in other ways. And he, but the thing is, every time Ahab looks at this land, he longs for it. He wants it. And I don't know if Ahab just likes to garden or if he wants to buy local organic. I have no idea. But he really, really wants this palace in Jezreel to have a vegetable patch. It's his dream of dreams. And Naboth's vineyard, is, it's in the perfect spot. In his mind, it's like, if I could just fence that into my property, it would be perfect. This, this palace would finally be what I want it to be. In the Syrian wars, we talked about those last week, they're finally over. Ahab has time on his hands. And so he decides he's going to make an offer uh, to this guy Naboth to get the home of his dreams. And so he sends messengers to Naboth. And look at verse 2. Here's what he says. Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. Ahab is saying, listen, Naboth, buddy, you've got a great location here, but why not flip it for something even better that I will give you? I can give you a vineyard of twice the size. I'm the king of Israel. I, I can do whatever I want. Or if you'd rather, name your price. Money is no object. Let me know. Get back to me, King Ahab. And as I read this the first time, I was like, this is the American dream, isn't it? It's like, I want a king to come to me and say, I will buy your house for any price that you give me. Every real estate agent in the room right now is like, yes, you would. You should do that. <laughs> Naboth, he wastes no time in replying to Ahab. He sends the messengers back and he says, no. I don't want your money. I don't want another vineyard. This is my family's land. I don't even have the right to give it to you. Now, it's hard, I think, for us to understand Naboth's motivation in doing this. And I, I think we just aren't tied to the land anymore. It's, we have a very different mindset, but we can approximate it. I mean, you all remember your child at home, right? And you remember your grandparents' living room where you opened presents on Christmas Day. You remember those places. They have a value that you can't quantify. You can't put a price on it. Now imagine you have a home or a vineyard or a parcel of land that has been in your family for hundreds of years. Naboth says, this is where my kids grew up. I've got marks on the wall for when they grew up and where my grandfather grew up. It's here that my dad got the, you know, the plow stuck for the first time when he was learning how to, how to do this. He told me that story. Here's where my wife and I got married. Everything happened here. I can't sell this place. And then he points out, even if I wanted to, it would be wrong. And Naboth says in verse 3, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. You know, when Israel first moved into Canaan, the Lord assigned uh, land to different tribes, different, different people. And it was an important part of his design. If you look at the book of Numbers, Moses says this. Uh, this is kind of indicative. He says, The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another. For every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. So it, had, it was supposed to stay in, in the tribe. And there's a reason for that. One is justice. You know, there's, there's, wealth is all in the land. This is a farm economy. The wealth is all in the land. You can't make money without land. So God wants to make sure people hang on to it. And he doesn't want wealthy, powerful people consolidating the land and excluding others from the market, as it were. And, and God, 
doesn't want that happening. It's, Naboth knows his land is supposed to stay with him. And I wonder, I, I can't get this from the text, but I wonder if Naboth also just felt a special calling vocation on his life to this land. I mean, he believes that this was, God gave him this for a reason. It's in my family line for a reason. It's my job to cultivate it and keep this part of God's gift to his people. It's my job and my family's job. How could I sell this? How could I give it away? Even for more money than I could possibly imagine, how could I do? He has too much integrity to do that. I told you, I told you, you would like this guy. So Naboth tells the king, even if I wanted to, I couldn't, I don't have the right. And when Ahab hears this news in verse 4, he gets his messengers back. He reacted like the class act that he's always been in the series. <laughs> Basically, he starts pouting like a toddler. He, 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 he puts on his sweatpants. He hides in his room for days. <laughs> People, br- they bring him food to eat, and he does one of these. You know, he turns his face. It's literally what it says. He turns his face, even when they make the choo-choo sounds and the airplane sounds. <laughs> and this guy... This guy had multiple palaces, wealth beyond imagination, power beyond imagination, but he couldn't get the vegetable garden of his dreams. So he's like, why live? (laughs) So someone realizing the disaster that this is causing, the king is completely useless right now, they go and they get his, his wife Jezebel, his queen Jezebel, because they think if anyone can shake him out of this funk, it's his evil conniving bride, Jezebel. So they go and they get her. And she <laughs> so she comes in, she says, honey, why are you sad? And, and Ahab says, well, that meanie Naboth, that guy over there, he will not give me his land because, because, he's, because of God. God says no. And I don't think I can go on. And Jezebel says this, verse 7, do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. I will do it. Honey, don't worry. I'm going to take care of it. So she comes up with a plan. She gets the king's seal. So the king, that's his signature. The king didn't often probably write a lot of letters. He would dictate them in someone else's hand. But you knew it was from the king because of his seal, his seal of approval. So she gets his signature, and she drafts a letter to the, the leaders and elders of Jezreel. And she says, I want you to call for a fast in the city. And now, a special fast like that, like an out-of-the-blue fast, is not tied to a festival or anything, that would, that would, that would signal that something is wrong. It, it's kind of like if the elders sensed that God was displeased with something among the community, like an evil had occurred, and the people should fast to kind of seek his will and seek his wisdom. So basically, Jezebel is saying, create a, a fake spiritual crisis in the city. She also has a flair for the dramatic. She says, and then call everyone together to City Hall for like a prayer meeting or something. And put, get Naboth, put him in a seat of honor. Call him in front of everyone. Because the higher they are, the harder they fall. Then bribe two liars, two worthless people who would sell their integrity for money to falsely accuse him. Make, make him the reason for the fast. Make him the scapegoat for the spiritual crisis that we've created. But she, she needs these charges to stick. She, it, they can't just, so she tells them word for word, here's what they should say. Accuse him of blasphemy against God and against God's king. Now in Israel, that is a capital offense. Do that so that no one will bat an eye when you take him outside the city and stone him to death. 
She sends these letters to Ahab, with, with Ahab's name, his seal, and starting in verse 11, the leaders of the city, they do exactly as Jezebel's told them to do. They hold a fast. They put Naboth in front of everyone. They, the, the, the guys stand up and accuse him of treason against God in the state, and they drag him outside the city before he knows it. No doubt, kicking, screaming, begging for his life, denying that he's ever done these things, right up until the first stone is, is thrown and he realizes it's over and in a few moments it, it is over. And the city sends messengers back to Jezebel saying, it's done, Naboth is dead. Jezebel brings Ahab his dinner on a tray and leaves him a note and says, Naboth is dead, have fun with your new toy. Kisses Jezebel. Here you go, King Ahab. And Ahab skips out of bed and he goes to the vineyard to lay claim to it. And I, you may be wondering, I was when I read this, what happened to Naboth's family? Didn't he, did he have any heirs that would take the land? And one of two things is possible. One, they either lose their land, they lose the rights to the land because of their father's sin. That's possible. It, it goes to someone else. Or uh, his sons are killed with him. And there's a reference actually in 2 Kings 9 later in this same story where they're talking about Naboth and his vineyard and they talk about Naboth's blood and the blood of his sons. So either way, what's left of Naboth's family is now completely destitute. They are without a home, they're without an income, and they're without a father. And for what? So that Ahab could have fresh vegetables. I want to stop for a second. The story's not over, but I, I think sometimes in our Western wealthy bubble, for lack of a better word, we forget that this is how the world works. It, it really does. I'm not, I'm not just trying to be depressing. I, I want us to admit together and remember that injustice and corruption like this, evil like this, it happens all the time, all over the world, from Osage County to Jezreel. And when I was younger, <clears throat> before I was a Christian, one of my least favorite things, oof, sorry about that, <clears throat> one of my least favorite things about the Bible in general was God's judgment. I just, I thought, how could a God of love, who claims to be a God of love, judge people? How could he punish them, execute them even, and claim to love? Maybe you've thought that. Maybe you've heard someone say that. Um, it was a convenient excuse for me personally until I read stories like this. You cannot read this story without your blood boiling. You can't hear this and think, after everything Ahab and Jezebel have done, and not think, who's going to do something about this? Who's going to make sure that justice is done? Who's going to make sure they pay for what they've done? And it's stories like this that remind me we need judgment. We don't often put it that way, but we need judgment. You cannot look at the story and say, a loving God does nothing here. Doesn't intervene, doesn't do anything. It's far too simple to say that God loves everyone and accepts everyone. Not, not when you've just seen an innocent man and his children stoned to death because of powerful, corrupt people. And honestly, that's part of our problem, I think. And I'm thankful for this. Let me qualify. I'm thankful, but we live such insulated lives from that kind of evil sometimes. We forget that the world needs a judge. There's a guy named Miroslav Volf. He's a theologian at Yale. Um, I've quoted him before, so if you've heard this, forgive me, but he's, a, he's Croatian. He and his family have seen some of the worst human evils imaginable growing up. And, and he, 
So now he's kind of speaking to American Westerners, and he, he says, here's what he says about our propensity to not like God's judgment, the idea that, we, that God shouldn't judge. He says, in a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, that idea will invariably die. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. God can't love and be good and not judge. If he doesn't judge, he is not worth worshiping. He is not who he claims to be. He must make all the wrongs of this world right again. He has to do something about Ahab and Jezebel. Because human justice it fails in this story. Corruption from top to bottom will make sure that no one pays for this. The case against the king and queen here, it's closed before it's even opened. Everybody who knows about this plot is involved in the plot. It's mutually assured destruction. No one's going to turn in Ahab and Jezebel, and it, it looks like they're going to get away with this. I mean, there's no one to accuse them, but they forget something. And it's basically the thing they have forgotten from the very beginning of their story. And they forget God. God sees all. He knows all. And he judges all. See, the, the leaders of the city, the justice system of the day is turning a blind eye to what they've done. God does not do that. Look at verse 17. The word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who's in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? And you'll say to him, thus says the Lord, in the palace where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick up your own blood. So Elijah, the other main character of our series, he is sent to do what he does best, to confront Ahab, this time for the last time. Ahab is strolling through his new vineyard, Naboth's vineyard, and he's making plans to have the vines pulled up and the vegetables put in. And he sees Elijah approaching him, and he, says, he calls him his favorite, this is Ahab's favorite name for Elijah, verse 20. Have you found me, O my enemy? And Elijah says, I have found you, because you've sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. This is him now speaking for God. I will utterly burn you up. And will cut off from Ahab every male, bond, or free in Israel. And just in case you're wondering, God sees Jezebel too. Look at verse 23. And of Jezebel the Lord also said, The dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. And anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. These are words that you do not want to hear from God. When Ahab hears this, he actually humbles himself. This is the first time, as far as I can tell, in his entire story. There's a little response. He humbles himself. And God says, because of that, because you've humbled yourself, I will delay the worst of my judgment until after you're dead. It's a small consolation. But Ahab's repentance is small. He doesn't restore the vineyard. He doesn't admit to guilt. He doesn't become a good king. We'll see that later on. And God makes good on all of these threats. Ahab is indeed killed in battle in chapter 22, again ignoring a prophet of God, and his blood is licked up by the dogs in the street, exactly how God said it would. And eventually, in the book of 2 Kings, Jezebel, she makes it a little while longer, but it catches up to her too. Jezebel's thrown from a tower window and eaten by dogs in the street. 
and only her head and her hands and her feet are left. That's the end of Jezebel. And it's like, why watch Game of Thrones when you could just read Second Kings? Um, <laughs> I haven't even described, I mean, go read the story sometime. So now when I read that, and I skipped ahead to Second Kings, um, I had two reactions. One was like fake and one was real. The fake one was, oh, that's, way, that's harsh. The second one was like, yes. Like, yes. I'm be, if I'm being honest with you, it was like, finally. And if you've been in this series, you might be thinking the same thing. You're cheering for it. It's like, you know, Indiana Jones, it's not enough the bad guy dies, their face has to melt off. It's like, we want, you, want, you want that kind of comeuppance for, for people that are this evil. We need judgment. It's part of how you, you can feel it and how you're designed. And it's dangerous if we don't think we need judgment. But it is equally dangerous to not be afraid of God's judgment in this story. See, we can be thankful that God judges us, and we should be. We can be thankful that he makes good on his, his word. But we cannot walk away and think, I'm so glad that I have nothing in common with Ahab and Jezebel. This is going to be a tough case, I think, but bear with me. If we truly reflect on our lives, we know we deserve judgment like that. We need it, but we deserve it. And we we can walk away thinking, I'm so glad God gets the bad guy without asking, am I a a bad guy? And you know, the Bible is very clear. It was Jesus who taught that evil does not begin in the actions. It begins in the heart. Jesus is the one who says to think an angry, murderous thought is to commit murder. To think a lustful thought is to commit adultery. And who in here has not thought evil towards someone? Who in here has not lusted? Who in here has not coveted? Who in here has not done much worse than anything I've listed so far? Right? Ahab and Jezebel, as awful as they were, and and they were, but we have to take this seriously. As awful as they were, they are an example of what human beings are capable of when you give them unchecked power and money and influence. They are, they are the, the, theolo- the logical consequence of a society that, that no longer checks the pride and evil of the human heart. That's a little abstract. So one of the most sober, sobering lessons of history for me uh, comes from uh, the Nazi, Ger- Nazi Germany in World War II. And we all know the terrible atrocities against the Jewish people and, and many others during that time, but I think what we often forget is the ordinariness of the people who committed them. They were, they were just like us. Modern, educated people. Heinrich Himmler, maybe you know that name, he was the uh, leader of the Gestapo, the secret police, widely considered one of the most evil men in the Nazi regime in the modern era. Uh, He was raised Roman Catholic, devout, devout family, and studied farming in college. These are not supervillains. We make them that, but they're not. These are human beings. These are human beings when asked, how could you do this? They said, we were taking orders. Human beings when asked, how did you not know what was happening right down the road from your city? Well, I, we didn't know what the smell was, but we didn't know. But they, they knew. What, what would we do? If we were there, 
Would we stand up for, to evil or would we have participated in it or would we be complicit in it? See, and Jesus knew, and we must know, that the potential for that kind of evil is inside of every human person. We can't compete with the scale of their evil, but have we not done evil? Have we not hurt the innocent? Have we not... Can we not close our eyes at night and in all honesty not think of our mistakes and our failures and our sins? See, we need God to judge, but if that's true, then God needs to judge us. And for a God who loves you, that presents a problem, does it not? But Naba's story, it, it points to something else, and I, I, we have to see this too. If we look at Naba's story closely, we, there's an offer there, there's a reminder, there's an echo here. And if we choose it, if we listen to it, our judgment has already happened. We, we can be free of judgment. So if Naba's story sounds familiar to you, it should. The climactic story of the entire Bible is Naboth's writ large. There's another innocent man in Israel. There's, another, there's a man who's, who's set up by corrupt leaders of God's people. There's a man falsely accused in court. There's a man taken out of the city. He's murdered in broad daylight on false accusations. And the prophet Isaiah, he, he saw this person ahead. He, he prophesied about this person, God's chosen servant. And he said, this, is a, this person is perfectly innocent, without sin or blemish, deserving of no judgment, absolutely righteous in every way. But Isaiah says he must be crushed, this person. Why? Isaiah says, for our iniquities, for our rebellion. Just like Ahab and Jezebel, you begin to see exactly what they did to Naboth. The Bible says, we did to Jesus. There's one difference, though, in, the, in their stories. There's one big difference. You know what it is between Jesus and Naboth? Jesus knew we would betray him. He knew we would kill him. He knew he would, we would reject him. We would mock him. But he willingly died anyway. As Isaiah says, that by his wounds we are healed. On him, the Lord Jesus laid, <laughs> the iniquity of all of us was laid on him. Our judgment fell on him. That's what Isaiah is saying. And if we choose Jesus in faith, our judgment already happened on a cross 2,000 years ago. You see, this, this is the gospel of grace. I, I don't know another way to put it. We, we need God to judge, but we deserve the judgment. So God was judged on our behalf. We can be free from judgment forever. So when your judgment comes and mine comes, and we need it to come, there's nowhere to run from it. Ahab can't outrun it. Jezebel can't outrun it. We can't. There's nowhere to hide except for one place, in the shadow of the cross of Jesus. Let's pray to him now. Father, in what we've done and left undone, we know we fall short of the lives you want us to live. We're selfish, prideful, stubborn people. We ignore your word. We spurn your mercy. In so many ways, we're no better than Ahab and Jezebel. We need your judgment for this world to make sense, but we cannot ourselves survive that judgment. And yet in your grace, you sent your son, not to judge, but to be judged on our behalf. 
He's the only judge I know who is judged. And now in faith, we can work for your justice. We can preach good news to the poor. We can set captives free. We can fight for the justice you want in our world without fear of judgment and without pride, even as we confront evil. Equip us, Father, for this work and remind us daily of our need for your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We wanted to respond this morning by taking communion together, the Lord's Supper. There's a couple reasons for that, but here's the big one. When, when Jesus says to you and to me, to all of us, this is my body, when he offers you the, the bread and the cup, when he says, this is my body broken and this is my blood shed, he is pointing to his judgment to come on the cross that will fall on him. And he is saying, take this and you will find acquittal. You'll find innocence. You'll find righteousness. You'll find healing. You'll find resurrection. You'll find life in my death. So if you know Jesus, if you, if you follow him, when you're ready, please come to one of the stations around the room. And we would love to serve you and remind you of this offer Jesus made and that you've accepted. And if you, if you haven't done that yet, if you're not sure how you, what you think of Jesus, that's, that's fine. But I want to encourage you, stay where you are. Don't do something you're not ready to do. And instead, consider Jesus' offer to you, your judgment on me, freedom, life for you. When you're ready, please come.